Terra incognita speculative fiction. Terra incognita speculative fiction. Welcome to this month's Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. I'm your host, Keith Stevenson. Put simply, Terra Incognita is the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it. And please visit tisf.com.au for links to our featured authors' website and publications. This month's featured writer is Miranda Simonovich, Melbourne-based author of a string of dark fantasy and horror short stories, whose tale for TISF, Aleph Mem Tav, concerns a queen whose search for truth threatens death. Catherine set the flask down on the wet earth. Her gut ached with the pain of her shedding womb, as she gathered her heavy skirts around her waist and knelt over the vessel, its round belly like a glass melon between her knees. Her nostrils filled with the musk of old blood and pine needles, sweet with the smell of horse manure. She slid two fingers deep between her thighs and withdrew a blood-soaked twist of braid. Dropping the matted hair into the narrow neck of the flask, she waited as the last drips of blood drained from her body, tainted in places with darker clots. Some ran into the hose, wrapping her thighs, but most fell in fat drops into the flask. With slick fingers, she stopped the vessel, its bulbous body now streaked with flashes of red. The cool alpine air played over Catherine's legs as she pushed her fingers deep again, using the last traces of blood to paint three symbols on the glass. In the clearing where she knelt lay a fallen tree, its ancient root mass exposed. She buried the flask in manure at the base of the great tangled medusa, wiped her hands on her underdress, and walked back through the rain-washed forest to the castle wall. The smell of manure and blood drifted after her. The glint of the gilded wall panelling plunged into darkness as Catherine lowered the wick on the lamp in her chamber. She heard her husband's steps resonate in the passage before the door swung open. When the king's voice addressed her in the gloom, she straightened, the dread on her face, hidden by the shadows. Catherine jerked back the drapes around her bed. She did not trust herself to speak, but the familiar routine required no words. At the firm grip of her husband's hands on her arms, she lay back on the bed under his weight, jaw clenched. His long curls teased sickeningly across her face as he fumbled to ready himself, pushing her shift up past her hips. His hands met the strand of rough twine that circled her waist. Catherine winced, realising her oversight. The king's probing fingers followed the cord to the medallion that hung from it. He grunted in surprise, pushed himself up and turned up the lamp. As the wick flared brighter, she pulled her shift down. "'You wear a sigil? Are you ill?' he asked. She seized the unexpected opportunity with relief. I am weak. I would not have mentioned anything but that you ask. It is nothing, I'm sure, just a lightness in the head. Vapours rise in my lungs when the weather cools. You dare to threaten the health of your king, he demanded. 
He tugged his roundly padded trunk hose to his waist. You should have had me informed. Never allow this to happen again. He smoothed his clothes with a rough gesture and left, slamming the door in his wake. Catherine rose to turn the lamp back down. She crept onto the bed, let the drapes fall closed around her, and crouched against the headboard, glaring into the blackness. Her fingers slipped down her stomach and clutched the reassuring shape of the medallion through her shift. Rubbing her thumb over the rough surface, she traced the scars of the three symbols she had carved, right to left. Aleph, Mem, Tav. Three symbols to spell one ancient word. Emmet. Your grace, is the light too low? Catherine looked up. Her handmaid stood in the doorway. Not at all. I'm simply considering my response. She put down the gilded pen she had been holding, poised to dip into the inkwell. It has been long since you last wrote him, my lady, said Bray, walking over to the writing desk. Monsieur Brochard will be wondering what has become of his finest patron. She covered Catherine's hand briefly with her own and knelt beside the Queen. The morning's light fell on Bray's face, and Catherine could make out the last yellow blur of the bruise below the girl's mouth. A vivid gash sliced down her lower lip, marking her chin with a line of dry crust. A surge of anger and pity tightened the Queen's chest. She reached down to lift Bray's hands. Is it still tender? she asked. The girl shook her head and looked away. I feel so powerless to help, to have helped you. Bray resisted the pull of Catherine's hands. My lady, she faltered, do not take my problems as your own. Catherine shook her head. Bray, I can still hear my country in your voice, see it in the curves of your face. You were my only comfort when I came here to marry. What he did to you is certainly my concern. She gripped the girl's hands more tightly. Last night, he came to me in my chamber. How can I force myself to lie with him, knowing all this? Bray's dark eyes glistened. My apologies, Your Grace. But surely you have your kingdom to remember. Your only child is a daughter. You are not in a position to bar the king from your bed. Catherine looked across to the sprawling fireplace, burning though the summer had barely ended. Her breath caught as she noticed through the doorway a figure reclining against the far wall of the passage. The king's valet stood with the point of one shoulder resting against the stone wall. His ankles were crossed and his mouth drawn thinly into an empty smile. As Catherine met his gaze, he pushed off the wall, brought his feet together and, with a short bow, turned down the passage. Bray saw him retreat and pulled away from the queen's hands in alarm. My lady... If the king was to suspect that you condemn him for forcing himself on me, he would spare you no mercy. Her voice dropped. Please, an executioner's hand is easily persuaded. Catherine sighed, fingering the rough paper that lay on the desk before her. Everything is questions, she said. I feel one thing and think another. And this letter, Bray, it only muddies the waters with its own questioning. Yes! Your letter, said Bray loudly, with a glance to the now empty doorway. What does Monsieur Richard write, Your Grace? Since when have you shared my interest in philosophy? smiled Catherine. Oh, Heinrich has been... Bray broke off, blushing. The Queen's laugh stirred the air, clearing the last ugly shadows of grief. My daughter's tutor is a very thoughtful gentleman, Bray. I am glad he sees fit to spend time with you also, she said. As to my letter... The scholar is writing of judgment. 
His contention is that only through the exercise of reason alone can one arrive at correct decisions. Then he speaks the truth. Decisions of the mind would only be obscured by the passions and imagination, said Bray. And Monsieur believes as you do. But this brutal divorce of the mind from the heart discomforts me. It cannot be that we must universally dismiss the knowledge derived from our passions. The women spoke. Bray's insights surprised and pleased Catherine, who appreciated the retreat from painful reality to the safety of abstraction. When the girl left, the Queen took up her pen. She dipped the delicate nib into a shallow bowl of ink and began to compose a reply to the philosopher. Outside, the early light that spilled over the sculptured sweep of lawns and hedges crept slowly closer as the castle's shadow slid back beneath the buildings. A grimy-faced boy finally came to tend the coals across the room and, when he finished his ministering and left, Catherine pushed back her chair and took the rambling, inconclusive missive over to the fire. She had no answers yet. Kneeling in a billow of heavy silk, she thrust the paper into the flames. The wet ink dried and dulled instantly in the heat before the paper blackened and her meandering words were lost. Flecks of soot detached themselves from the edges of the burning pages and lifted in the air amongst the spit and crackle of the fire. Catherine pushed herself up, brushed her clothes clean and swept from the room. Her footsteps echoed in the empty passageways as she made her way to the northern wing of the castle. At the door of her chamber, she halted abruptly. The king's valet had emerged from the gallery further down the passage. He strode to meet her. My lady, your loyal maid is not with you. What is it you want, sir? I am to announce a visitor from the king, your grace. The valet stood aside, grinning, and Catherine recognised the figure who now waited at the gallery's entrance. The court physician, your grace, supplied the valet redundantly. I am not ill. I sent for no one. Not ill? Then the visit will be a short one, my lady. As he strode back down the passage, he nodded at the doctor, who lifted an arm from under his scarlet robe to touch the brim of his fur-lined cap as the valet passed. Catherine waited for the doctor to reach her before turning to receive him in her chamber. Doctor, I, I understand that you have been sent for by the king. I can assure you that the symptoms of which I suffer are of no great concern. I feel that I would be most benefited by taking a brief, refreshing walk on the grounds. The doctor removed his cap and placed it, uninvited, on the chest by the bed. His Majesty led me to understand that you have already undergone treatment for your ailment. I wear a sigil, fashioned by a physician in the village. You are so frequently required in the lecture hall that I did not want to trouble you with such a minor complaint. The doctor nodded humbly. Your Grace, I can assure you that the charms you have bought will be of little use. The symbols that these charlatans prescribe are but vague hermetic fancies. He spoke rapidly, as if surprised by the force of his own ideas. I will examine you and prescribe a suitable course of treatment. Saturn is ascending, and the excessive contraries of this planet are drawing vapours from the earth. You would do well to avoid spending time out of the castle, as no doubt you have a susceptible complexion. He drew a quick breath before tumbling on. I will arrange to have a boy tend to a medicinal fire. In the meantime, however, I will leave you ambiguous to discourage the miasma. You have not, perchance, bathed in water in the last few days, Your Grace? Catherine shook her head. Good, good, so many of my wealthy patients, and I do not imply you a subject to vanity, Your Grace, but my more wealthy patients are wont to bathe on occasion, feeling that the scented oils applied after will protect their pores. You must not believe this. It is fancy, all fancy. He waved his hands to emphasise his point. 
Under no circumstances must the pores be open to the vapours. Water, physical intimacy, heavy emotion must all be avoided by susceptible persons. Please, sit. One eyebrow arched in astonishment, Catherine sank onto the chest beside the doctor's cap. He pushed the tight linen ruffles that spilled from the cuff of her sleeve up over her elbow and pressed his fingers to her skin. Holding himself quiet, he fixed his eyes on the floor. The corner of his mouth twitched as he waited, a tiny focus for the energy that had been so suddenly suppressed. He released her arm. Your pulse is weak and irregular, Your Grace. I will proceed as I have already explained, but should you not be recovered in the next four days, I shall be forced to consider bleeding. He turned her hand over and inspected her palm. But I am hopeful that this will not be necessary. Did you dismiss your maid? You should not go without food. He frowned. Yes, I will arrange for a boy to build the fire. The doctor whirled to the door, then turned back suddenly and lifted his cap from the chest. He returned it to his head, paused, produced a small bundle from the depth of his scarlet robe and placed it next to the bewildered queen. Ambergris, if you feel you must leave your chambers, do carry this with you, Your Grace. And he was gone. Catherine waited a moment, listening to his hurried steps receding down the passage. Unwrapping the soft leather that bound the little package, she found a velvet pouch the size of her hand. Inside was a large pebble of hard grey wax that filled the room with a shockingly sweet, leathery perfume. After a moment's consideration, she hung the pouch from her wrist by its thin loop of ribbon. Catherine knelt before her wooden chest and raised the ornate lid. The rich fabrics within yielded under her touch. Fine wool, delicate linens as soft as vellum, embroidered silks that shone two colours in the light. Some smaller items rested on top of the folded fabrics, slim-fitting gloves, necklaces, other jewels. She lifted out a large emerald brooch set in a ring of tiny pearls. This she pinned under her bust, where the drapes of lace coming down from her shoulders joined the waistline of her bodice. Catherine had left her chamber and stepped into the gallery when she heard light footsteps in the passage. As they passed her in the doorway, she recognised the soot-smeared face of the boy that had tended the fire in her solar. He hurried towards her chamber, burdened with a mound of juniper and bay branches, and too distracted with his load to notice the queen. She walked down the narrow length of the gallery, past the ornate panelling that flaunted an array of long dead royals. On the far wall there hung a large, richly coloured arras. Two emaciated hounds stared out at her with hungry eyes, framed on either side by tall, sinuous trees. Gold threads sparkled in their coats, caught by the flickering light from the sconces on the walls. Catherine bent and lifted a corner of the heavy tapestry, revealing a small door behind. She pulled it open, fighting against the dead weight of the hanging. Crouching low, she entered the cramped passageway. The door swung shut behind her, plunging the passage into total darkness. She strained against her sudden blindness, reaching her arms forward along the cold stone walls. The air smelt wet. Within two steps, the passage turned sharply and plunged into a spiral flight of stairs. Her broad skirts pressed against the moist stone on either side as she made her way down. She kept her palms flat against the walls, and the faint sounds of castle life echoed beyond the stone as if at a great distance. When she reached the bottom, she ran her hands over the cracks in the wall until they slid into a familiar crevice. Steadying herself, she pushed her full weight against the wall, which ground slowly open. The daylight was sharp against her eyes, and Catherine squinted as she pushed the stone slab back into place. Its outline melted into the formidable structure of the city wall, 
merging here with the castle itself. Wide towers rose from the battlements into the sky. The king's hunting park sprawled out across the valley. Catherine slipped into the trees and made her way down the hill. As the forest grew denser and darker, she slowed. Bushes reached across the narrow track and pulled at her skirts, which she had gathered into her arms. Finally, the trail dwindled into nothing, and after ducking under the low branches of a thick stand of pines, Catherine found herself back in the clearing of the fallen conifer. Sunlight pierced through the boughs and fell on the deepest part of the hollow where manure steamed near the base of the dirty root mass. Catherine knelt on the aromatic pine needles and removed the velvet pouch from her wrist. She plunged her hands into the pit and lifted out the heavy stoppered flask, wiping manure from its round body. The bloody lettering she had painted was obliterated, but in its place the thick glass had frosted and the three symbols were clearly visible in bands of milky white. Behind the street glass the flask was empty, save for a faint form that shifted and twisted, half perceptible but disorientating to hold in focus. Catherine set the flask on the ground and removed the stopper. She unpinned her emerald brooch and held the fingers of one hand above the neck of the vessel. Somewhere distant came the clamour of a startled flock of birds taking flight. She pushed the sharpened point of the brooch pin into her fingertip and dropped the trinket to the ground. Grasping the base of her finger, she milked out a bright drop of blood that welled, glistened and fell into the flask, vanishing without hitting its base. At that moment, the vague, twisting form inside thickened and Catherine could make out a cramped figure, barely opaque, squatting within and all but filling the belly of the flask. The tip of her finger was still wet with a light smear of blood. Reluctantly, she lowered it in. A flurry of mist spiralled behind the glass and a flash of pain stabbed through Catherine's fingers. A sudden, sharp pressure gripped her hand, immobilising it at the mouth of the flask. The figure in the vessel bloomed solid, kneeling back on its heels, broad face upturned. It had roughly the size and appearance of an emaciated infant. It had clamped its wide mouth around two of her fingers and from the corners of its lips bloody saliva ran in streams over its grey skin. Catherine could see that it had barely the room to turn. Suddenly the pressure on her hand loosened as the creature shifted its cramped body. Catherine jerked her hand back and a thin grey arm snaked out of the flask after her. A high-pitched shrieking hiss filled the valley. The creature strained against the narrow neck, face pressed against the bulging glass, one arm stretching up out of the vessel. It clawed at the air, unable to bend its elbow enough to reach even the outer surface of the flask. Catherine snatched up the stopper and pushed it back into place, trapping the tiny, flailing limb. The shriek flattened into a whining snarl as the creature tugged its arm back and the stopper slid too. Catherine sat back heavily on the pine needles. The creature, with difficulty in its narrow confines, lowered itself down and brought its sharp knees up to its chest. It regarded her with eyes that dominated a broad face. The pupils were black points, set at the centre of wide vermilion discs, themselves run through with thin spokes of black and yellow. It wiped its face with spindly fingers, a flat, pointed tongue working around the bony digits to savour the last traces of her blood. Catherine noticed that her hand had ceased throbbing. She looked down at her fingers in time to see the last marks of the creature's bite fade away, leaving her hand grimy but unblemished. A thin, high voice pierced the quiet of the forest. 
You wonder that I would not hurt you, woman? The creature scoffed, its words dampened but clearly audible through the glass. No harm will come to your body. Feed me further. Catherine shook her head, scowling. You have what you need, demon. You are strong enough. The bright eyes snapped closed, then flickered open a fraction into two red gashes. The three symbols she had painted on the glass were pressed into the creature's forehead. Catherine spoke again, sensing the importance of enforcing her authority. I understand what you are. I have created you from my own blood. I fed you once, and now you must be satisfied, Archaea. The creature's eyes flashed open at the sound of its name. You do not control me, woman. I am outside of your kind. You may not be bound by the blood I give you, but I am likewise free to withhold it. And it is because you are outside of humanity that I have created you. Because you know what it is to be uninhibited by human imagination and the human mind. You do not possess them. Your forehead is scarred with the emblem of your nature. That is all that binds you. Emmet. Truth. Archaea cocked her head scornfully. Catherine continued, her heart pounding. Only you can tell me how to resolve what is confused by my mortal passions. She kept her voice commanding, but her mouth was dry around her words. This is about your maid, the creature sneered. You make me manifest on your plane to seek my advice, because your heart fights with the unwanted obligations your position brings. She bared her tiny teeth in contempt and flicked the pointed tip of her tongue across her lips. Do not mock me. I cannot lie with a rapist. I cannot bear a child to such a man. But you bore him a daughter, woman. When I looked on him with respect, I will never have that respect again. Archaea gazed out from behind the sigil-streaked glass. She curled quivering lips back from her teeth, holding still as if waiting for Catherine to present a more deserving petition. Finally, her voice hissed from within the vessel. What care I for a plea from a woman so grounded in her own humanity? Is my problem not worthy? I care nothing for your problem. It carries no import, woman. The desire and distress of your kind is more easily comforted than you imagine. She half shut her eyes and let her head sag back against the flask wall. Then how shall I comfort them? asked Catherine in a low voice. The question brought Archaea back upright. She craned her neck and pressed her hands and face to the glass. You wish to understand, woman. Tell me, you truly wish to understand? You wish me to reveal to you exactly what you are? She began to laugh, a thin, high whine that wavered as her emaciated torso swelled and collapsed with her airless breath. I will understand how to judge what is important. You will see what is not, she squealed. When I teach you the truth, you will leave the cares of humanity as easily as a snake its skin. Archaea slid up onto her knees. I can make you like me. Her red eyes were wide with urgency. Catherine scowled in confusion as the creature laughed again, peals of glee echoing across the forest. The crash of a deer fleeing through the underbrush sounded nearby. Catherine shot a wary glance out of the hollow. Everything was still. I will tell you, I will tell you, Archaea muttered. She seemed lost in consideration for a moment before her eyes shot back into focus and she pushed against the glass again. I will show you. Sleep tonight. Forget me now and sleep tonight. Soon you will understand the existence that I can offer you. As you are greater than who you dream, so I am greater than you. You will see. 
Archaea, what existence? Explain. But the creature shuffled awkwardly in the flask until her face was hidden and her thin back, spine curving sharply under the papery skin, faced Catherine. You are bound by the truth, Archaea. Tell me, what should I do? The creature hissed, a long, low sibilance that faded into silence. She would not turn. Catherine gathered up the brooch and velvet pouch and rose to her feet. She left the heavy flask in the shelter of the roots and climbed slowly up the hill. When she clambered, exhausted, from the dank passage into the gallery, her skirts were filthy. She tried to smooth the rich fabric, conscious of the disapproving stares of her predecessor's portraits. In the entrance of the long gallery, she was met again by the king's valet. He bowed, sweeping an arm through the medicinal smoke that hung thick in the air. As he spoke, his eyes took in her loosened hair and grimy silk. "'I came to find you in your chamber, Your Grace.' The good doctor assured me you would be resting. He smiled with narrowed eyes. Your husband will be most interested to hear of your swift recovery. I do nothing but follow the good doctor's prescriptions, she replied, spreading her arms to indicate the pouch at her wrist. The king would readily agree that he does not dictate my movements about the castle. I see your grace is rather more headstrong than his majesty's former queen. I understand you also have other opinions about what the king should and should not do. He shrugged. No doubt you continue to please him despite your inventive mind. What a tragedy it would be to cut short such a life for the sake of a royal whim. Catherine drew herself up. You had a message, sir? She asked. Of course. The valet bowed a second time. Your artist friend, the philosopher, sends his most heartfelt regards. He is on the road to the city on unexpected business and wonders whether he may not spend the morrow with his royal patron. I will be pleased to receive Monsieur Richard tomorrow morning. I bid you good day. Catherine swept past the valet towards her chamber. The air within was dense with a spicy haze. A pile of fresh branches lay to one side of the smouldering fire. She returned the brooch to its place and sank down on the lid of the chest. Gazing into the billowing white smoke, she rubbed a hand across the firm waist of her dress, feeling for the sigil fixed at her belly. Bray appeared in the doorway. I could not find you on the grounds, my lady. Have you been brought the news? His Majesty's valet met me. I receive Monsieur Richard tomorrow. You must be in need of food, Bray pressed. I will ask Cook to have something made up. She surveyed the Queen's appearance. Will you be wishing to change, my lady? Despite Catherine's restrained opposition, Bray insisted on helping her mistress into a fresh dress. She tried to avoid the maid's gentle questions. She had been out walking. The ground was still wet with mud. Perhaps you ought to rest today, my lady, said Bray, as she pinned in place the braids that crowned the queen's forehead. The king does believe you ill. It would be awkward to be seen out of doors again. Catherine lifted a hand and traced her fingers down her maid's pale cheek. Bray, she said softly, one day we will return home. Your home and your duty is here, my lady, whispered Bray. Catherine passed the day in her chamber, other than the boy who maintained the medicinal fire and Bray who brought up a lavish platter of gingerbread cakes and dariole, no one sought her out. The grey skies dimmed the light coming through her window, and the low-burning fire added little more. She tried to read over some of the letters she had received from Monsieur Bouchard, 
wishing that she were free to take them up to her more brightly lit solar. But the philosopher's abstract deliberations only frustrated her further. Finally, Catherine threw them in exasperation across the bedspread and gave up her mind to weary confusion. That evening, the hall was alive with noise as servants cleared and removed the tables after supper. The guests milled before the small dais upon which two musicians sat, tuning their instruments. Catherine stood at the king's side, a goblet of brandy wine in her hand. A heavily powdered countess was speaking to her with great animation about rental and servants, but Catherine found herself mesmerised by the fleshy workings of the woman's face and was unable to distinguish her conversation from the din of the servants dragging trestles across the floor and the spatter of tentatively plucked strings from the dais. When the last tables were cleared away, the musicians began to play. The chatter of the guests softened as they turned to watch the performers. The countess, momentarily distracted, Catherine excused herself and crossed the hall to a long sideboard laid with sweet cakes and drinks. As she regarded the spread of delicacies, a movement caught her eye. On the balcony adjoining the hall, a couple stood deep in conversation. The warm light spilling from inside illuminated their profiles against the dark backdrop of evening sky. The man was Heinrich, the princess's tutor. As Catherine watched, the woman glanced into the hall, and the queen recognised her handmaid. Bray regarded her suitor with caution, half flattered, half wary. Heinrich made as if to take her hand, and she stepped back. She crossed her arms under her bust, holding a distrustful distance without breaking away altogether. Catherine turned her back to the couple and searched the crowd for the king. He was now being entertained by the same powdered countess that Catherine had abandoned, and from what she could see he was enjoying her attention. The king's valet stood behind them, his back to the far wall of the hall. He caught the queen's eye briefly before fixing his attentions on his master. "'Your Grace, please allow me to refill your goblet,' said a voice at her side. Catherine started and dismissed the zealous servant with a wave of her hand. When she glanced again in the valet's direction, he was gone. For the remainder of the evening, Catherine welcomed her role as apparent invalid. The velvet pouch at her wrist and the cloying, leathery scent of ambergris reduced her obligation to mix with the guests. She stayed out of the throng and watched, impassive, as the king offered dances to the ladies of the court. He swept the ornamented women across the floor to the bright lilt of the lute and the viol, his closely tailored form stepping carefully around their padded skirts and broad sleeves. As they preened in his arms, his eyes stayed fixed on the other dancers, openly admiring the ample hips that drifted past, draped in rich silks, brocades and velvets. Catherine retired to her chambers when the guests had only just begun to depart. Her fire had died low, but a thick smell of spices still filled the room. She crept into bed without waiting for someone to be called to tend the coals and fell into a light sleep. In her dreams, vague figures reached to her, calling and pleading for help. One she recognised as the maid Bray, bruised and hideously scarred. She tried to call out to the girl, but her voice was no more than a silent rush of force from her lungs. Laughter echoed around her. She remembered Archaea, her hissing shriek, and realised where she was, the formless arena of a dream. This place, this miserable girl, was nothing more substantial than the workings of her imagination. Bray lay at her feet, her swollen face turned towards her mistress. Catherine found that she could speak. She dropped to her knees and seized the girl's shoulders, trying to explain that their existence here was an illusion. Tears streaked Bray's cheeks, and she stared back, face twisted in anguish. "'But you are not real here! This pain is unreal!' Catherine cried. 
Over and over she repeated that the hurt was imagined, aware, even as she spoke, that her body lay asleep in its heavily draped bed in the cold darkness of the castle. But here she felt no cold, surrounded by the dreamscape that faded into confusion behind her, while before her the dream bray continued to sob. The girl looked into her mistress's face, uncomprehending, as Catherine implored her to understand. A muted light was leeching into the room when Catherine sat up and threw open the drapes around her bed. The image of the wounded girl was still vivid in her mind, as was the panicked sense of futility she had felt trying to explain to the dream girl what she was. She was haunted by the impassable distance that had separated her, the dreamer, from the young woman in her dream. Catherine unlatched the doors that opened onto her balcony and stepped into the first rays of dawn. Stone chilled her palms as she leaned on the balustrade. The king's hunting park stretched into the valley, a dark, matted expanse. What had Archaea said? That she was greater than Catherine, in the same way that Catherine was greater than the world of her dreams. The implications of the demon's invitation began to crystallise, and suddenly Catherine saw the landscape beyond the walls in a new light. A falcon circled above the trees, which thinned towards the neighbouring hill. High on the crest, a charcoal burner dragged a handcart towards the main thoroughfare. All at once, bird, forest and peasant came together like a living tapestry, removed from the world of the Queen. She was struck by the fundamental transience of her situation, and a great sense of relief flooded over her. In the centre of the forest where Archaea waited was the opportunity to accept a change of not only mind, but state, to undergo a transformation that would lift her understanding out of reach of inconsequential human circumstance. Catherine came back inside and stood gazing blindly into the fireplace. A few unburnt twigs of juniper lay among the cold ashes. She thought of the court physician and his distracted prescriptions. She thought of the king's hungry eyes sweeping across the hall. She realised she no longer pined for an earthly solution. The force of Archaea's magic overwhelmed her, and Catherine felt longing grow deep in her gut. She wanted nothing more than to leave her cares as completely as she had left that dream. To wake from her own life... "'I did hope you had risen, Your Grace,' said Bray from the doorway. "'You will want to prepare for your visitor's arrival.' Catherine looked up. She still expected the bruises and scars she had dreamed to cover the girl's face, but her skin was clear, her smile only crossed by the thin line of scab running down from her lip. Somehow this reinforced the gulf that suddenly yawned between them. "'Dress me quickly. I wish to be alone,' said the Queen. Bray frowned and lay her armload of fabric on the chest. I thought you might want to wear the red brocade for your audience with Monsieur Bouchard, my lady, she said quietly. Catherine narrowed her eyes. Considerations of fashion felt gallingly mundane. I have little concern for my outfit, girl, she said sharply. Bray did not respond. Her lower lip slid nervously between her teeth as she selected a pair of delicate hose from the trappings on the chest. Her cut split and a thin line of fresh blood dampened her chin. Bray winced and brought a hand to her mouth. A haze lifted. Catherine, the chalky scent of fragrant ashes in her throat, was suddenly shocked by the girl's distress. The rejection in her maid's expression stunned her. She took the hose from Bray's unresisting hands and gently wiped the red smear from her chin. Little sister, forgive me, she said. Forgive me. I wanted to forget you. I would have tried. Our loving God knows I would have tried and succeeded. How would I have ever forgiven myself? 
She snatched up a thin night robe, draped on the bed, and pulled it on over her shift, looping the high belt quickly around her body. Her handmaid stood mute. Before the girl could protest or express her confusion, Catherine was at the door. Let no one look for me, Bray. Her flight to the hunting park was as unreal as the temptation dream now seemed. She sank to her ankles in the wet grass near the castle wall, the hem of her robe quickly soaked with dew. As she made her way into the forest, the ground hardened. Stones pushed through the dirt, and fallen sticks snapped against her shins. By the time she crawled into the hollow, her long, loose hair was filthy with snag leaves and pine needles. It had rained during the night, and the flask had been washed clean of the last traces of manure. Archaea waited. Sharp knees clasped to her chest, blood-bright eyes fixed on her creator. Her thin voice hissed from the stoppered flask. You have the opportunity to awaken from your reality, woman. You will never know what is of true significance, of true importance, if you do not accept my invitation. The creature's face twisted with contempt. The three symbols etched on her grey skin wrinkled as her brows drew down in a vicious sneer. I do not need your world, Archaea. But your own is only pain! It is pain, but it is my pain. I insult Bray's suffering if I run from it like a coward. You are ignorant woman. Her hurt is not yours. Wrong, demon. You tempted me with the promise of removing my pain, but what you offer is a transcendence of this life, this existence. My mortal world may not be the highest realm, and within it I may suffer, but my suffering provides meaning for Bray's own burden. If I did not hurt, her pain would affect no one. My own torment gives her struggle meaning. Your loyalty is useless. She has her tutor. She could find peace without you. If the king was to learn of your feelings against him, your life would be worth little. And if I were to ignore my hatred, no one would benefit but the realm. Bray's suffering means more to me than a kingdom of strangers. Arkea's lips curled back from her teeth. How can you refuse my offer, she asked. You would let your mind remain clouded with human passions. Come, be with me. I will show you what this existence of yours truly is. Nothing but a dream. Your little maid is nothing. Catherine remembered Bray's guarded interest in Heinrich on the empty balcony. Anger welled in her throat like acid. She threw herself down on the pine needles, clawing through them at the rocky ground. Her fingers touched the sharp outline of a fist-sized stone, and she worked it quickly from the dirt. She crawled, livid, back to the flask, and raised the rock above her head. Archaea's eyes shifted to the hasty weapon and widened with understanding. Let me speak, woman, or you will never know, she shrieked. Catherine brought the rock down hard on the bulging flask. The shatter of glass met with a deafening wail as Archaea's voice broke from its confines. Catherine lost all sense of the glistening forest around her and the sharp cold of the air against her barely protected skin. Archaea kicked at the shards of glass that covered her, bony arms flung up to protect her face. Before the creature could rise, Catherine pushed her weedy frame back into the ground. Using her weight to pin the writhing, shrieking body down, Catherine leaned into the symbol-scarred face. I will not let you help me be so ardently self-serving. If this is your truth, demon, I want nothing of it. Archaea wailed, one free arm still held over her forehead to shield the symbols carved into her grey skin. She twisted under Catherine's weight, trying to turn her face away from her creator. Emmet! the demon shrieked. You must face the truth! 
Catherine hit the clawing fingers away as she tried to grip the creature's snarling face. Sharp nails tore at her flesh. No, the word of death, Archaea, met. At this, the struggling creature froze. Her red eyes widened and her voice dropped to a hissing whisper. Met. Met. For me, now, woman, yes. But soon, also, for you. If you will not face the emmet, the truth that I offer, your choice will only bring you met. Catherine finally managed to hold Arkea's head hard against the ground. The wailing rose as she pushed her thumb into the aleph on the creature's forehead. The pressure tore through the grey skin like wet paper. Two symbols remained, Mem and Tav, to spell the word of death. The shrieking ceased. Catherine fell forward, her hands sinking into the suddenly lifeless carcass, now the texture of moist clay. She sat back. Archaea's body was scarcely recognisable. Two depressions disfigured the chest and face, one wide staring eye, now the same grey as the creature's skin. Catherine pushed her fingers down into one of the splayed limbs, leaving small pits in the strange, pliant flesh. Her hands throbbed, pale skin raked with bleeding cuts. The silence over the forest seemed louder even than Archaea's screeching. Catherine unwrapped the tie of her robe and fumbled under her shift to remove the pendant tied to her waist. The twine left a raw band on her skin. The clay face of the medallion was marred, the rightmost symbol now obscured, as if thumb-pressed before the clay had dried. She hurled the disc into the forest and heard a faint rustle of disturbed underbrush before the eerie quiet descended completely. But of course, monsieur, and the court hears that your papers are being read as far as Rome. It seems you are creating quite a commotion. The king's valet clapped his visitor on the shoulder. The two were seated at a broad fireplace. Wine and cakes were arranged on a small table before them. You are very kind, I'm sure, good sir, but there is certainly some resistance from the chemists. They would still have you believe that the human body is some unnatural autonomous laboratory. Nonsense! The truth is there before their eyes, and from what I understand, monsieur, your work on the imagination is no less perfect. The passions are certainly the only impediment to progress. I must say, yours is a truly amazing intellect. The visitor was embarrassed by the enthusiasm of his host. He smiled graciously at this last statement and quickly turned his attention to the refreshments. He proceeded to inspect the wide selection and give the outward appearance of struggling with a most challenging decision. The king's valet fell quiet. Both men looked up in alarm when the door behind them flung violently open. There, framed against the cool morning light, stood the queen. A dirty night robe hung wetly from her shoulders, and her bare feet were grimy with mud. Loose hair fell in strands around a face set in grim decision. She stepped forward and addressed their shocked expressions. Monsieur Bouchard, I must answer your letter, and I have come to my conclusion. You are mistaken. To ignore the passions and the imagination is to ignore one's own humanity. Terra incognita speculative fiction. Terra incognita reviews.
This month's review book is Horn by Peter M. Ball. Gumshoe Alley is a well-trodden path, and if, as a writer, you're planning to marlow things up, it's dollars to dimes you need an angle, something that makes you stand out from the other schmoes. Horn by Peter M. Ball, number two in the novella series from 12th Planet Press, has a few things going for it in that department. For one thing, the world-weary P.I., Aster, is a woman, and not just any broad. She's done time as a meatsicle in the morgue slab, but she's all better now, or almost. Add to that an unwanted and generally ignored influx of fey folk, fairies, goblins and the odd murderously rapacious unicorn into the once fair city of Aster's birth, and you can start to see that this gumshoe story may be more than meets the eye. Peter M. Ball demonstrates a solid grasp of the detective and fantasy tropes in the entertaining opening to Horn. As lovers of Chandler and his ilk, we nod our heads at the heavy-drinking P.I. and his motley collection of ne'er-do-well acquaintances, the coroner who's seen too many kids meet a nasty end, and Astor's own femme fatale. There's a nice display of that knowledge and control as the story builds and the body count mounts up. But the thing about this kind of pastiche is that just as much as we, the readers, want to see the tropes and idiosyncrasies of the subgenre trotted out and given their place on the page, we want something more from a retelling. You see it in movies all the time, and Tarantino is just one master of it. We want a story like this to act as a reframing device for the familiar to somehow refresh it, make it the same but newer, with its own unique sensibility. Maybe it's a different historical, or social, or political perspective. In the first half of the novel, Ball is fun melding the fantasy and detective conventions together, and it looks like we're heading for the type of bravura Tarantino-esque reimagining I've just described. But for whatever reason, the story falters in the second section, and the novelty and creativity and potential for uniqueness in the story falls away, and we're left with a more conventional denouement. Don't misunderstand me, Horn is an enjoyable and entertaining read, but for a while there, it carried the seeds of something much, much greater. Three stars. Horn by Peter Emball is available in Australia from 12th Planet Press. You have been listening to Terra Incognita Australian Speculative Fiction Podcast. Visit tisf.com.au for links to the featured author's websites and for details of their publications. Stories are copyright by the author. Book reviews are copyright Keith Stevenson, 2009. This podcast is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 Australian license. See our website for details. Please tune in next month for another podcast of the best Australian speculative fiction read by the authors who created it.